Jose Nino here, bringing you another episode of El Nino Speaks. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of talking to Daniel McAdams, the executive director at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. In my view, Daniel is one of the most principled voices for a restrained non-interventionist foreign policy in this time of just complete hysteria, and he's a total breath of fresh air when discussing foreign policy matters. How's everything going, Daniel? Hey, Jose, thanks for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. I follow your work and love what you write for Mises and stuff, so it's great to be with you. Awesome. Now, before we dive into the meat of this content, could you give my audience a brief overview of your background and what got you into foreign policy analysis? Well, I did uh, international relations in grad school, and so that got me started. But what really got me going as a non-interventionist, you know, I watched the end of the Cold War and I, and I moved to Central Europe right after the wall fell and the Cold War was over, living in Hungary. And what got me into non-interventionism as a foreign policy is watching unfold before me the, the absurd and ridiculous and murderous U.S. intervention in Serbia and Yugoslavia. 78 days of bombing a country that did nothing to us and did not threaten us and the utter destruction of the country made me rethink a lot of things. And I wasn't a neocon or anything like that, but I just, I exited the Cold War mentally thinking, hey, there's a lot of good people over there who are anti-communist and we should support them. We should be supporting the anti-communists. And why the hell is Bill Clinton supporting the communists in Albania and all these places? We got to support the right people. And then watching that war and then discovering Ron Paul and Justin Raimondo and Lou Rockwell and starting to read them, I came to the realization it's not about supporting the good guys or the bad guys or the commies or the anti-commies. The only sensible solution is for the U.S. to not support anyone or certainly the U.S. government to not support anyone. So it was kind of a school of hard knocks way of getting around to it. It wasn't some sort of an intellectual wake-up call for me. It was just saying that this stuff doesn't work. Interventionism really is very, very harmful and deadly, so we should just stop doing it. Very sensible indeed. So right now you have like Russia's military operations against Ukraine at the center of all like foreign policy discussion. And as usual, there's a lot of misleading and outright malicious information going out in the media covering this entire situation. Could you provide your perspective on the current developments in Ukraine? Yeah, the one thing that I noticed, and you, you alluded to in your beginning, in your opening, is the hysteria. The level of hysteria is shocking. In fact, I just got off the phone with my friend Eric Garris, who runs antiwar.com, and we were both reflecting. It really has been since 9-11 that it was this hysterical, this idea that if you are not with us, you are not just the enemy, but you are terrible, and you damn well better take a side. I think, if anything, it's ramped up for this, the idea that you must take a side. And, you know, as analysts, you know, journalists used to not do that. They used to look for the facts. They used to try to dig behind government talking points and in very uh, conveniently timed leaks from intelligence services. They used to try to verify these things. But that world is gone. And now this is the world of of advocacy rather than journalism and the hysterical demand that you take sides. Are you with Team Russia or Team Ukraine? If you're with Team Russia, you must be destroyed. It's really absurd and it's really damaging and it's destroying our discourse. You know, and Dr. Paul and I did a show today where we talked about, it was a Politico article where they said um, the tech world is reluctantly 
taking sides in this and banning all Russian misinformation propaganda outlets and stuff. So it's the tech world has joined the fight in a way, of course, that it wasn't in 9-11 because it didn't exist and it didn't have the power that it does to control the debate. But they're jumping in as well and saying, you can only listen to these people talk. You can't listen to these people talk. So it's a very, very dangerous kind of like total war atmosphere that I think it's more something akin to what you'd see in a totalitarian state. I saw the other day that if you express any positive views of Russia in the Czech Republic, you can face three years in prison. So it doesn't matter what you think about the conflict, in my opinion. It matters what's happening to discourse in the so-called West. Yeah, the so-called liberal democracies hilariously becoming what they supposedly are fighting against. Yes. Well, in this entire military operation that Russia is conducting, what do you think is the end goal for Russia? Is it regime change? annexation or turning Ukraine into a neutral state? It's hard to know. I mean, I'm not a mind reader, but the one thing that you try to go on as an analyst is that is the Russian president, has he done so far what he said he's going to do? And it doesn't mean if you agree with it or not, it's just as an analyst, right? And so he says, here's what I want, A, B, and C. Let's talk about it. You know, this happened back in December After eight years of a coup regime in Ukraine that was put in place by the United States, which people don't like to talk about, but it is a fact. But after eight years of watching this unfold, finally in December, they came out with a document and they said, this is an outline for a new security architecture in the region. Let's talk about it. And basically, the U.S. Secretary of State laughed in his face and did nothing about it. And so he said, okay. This is, you know, on the 24th, when they started taking action, he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make sure that Ukraine is neutral, is not a member of any bloc, and that is not chock full of weapons given it to a by outsiders that we view as being threatening. And so the answer of what they will do, I don't know how far they will go now. I mean, I will say I did not think they would go in, and I'm, you can listen to it for yourself many times. I said Russia is not going to go in. I didn't think they would. I did say that they would not allow Donbass to be continued to be shelled. I think he made the the decision there. I don't think they were going to allow that to be invaded. And there were a lot of Ukrainian troops that were also massing on the border of Donbass. But I didn't think he'd go all the way through. And I don't know what he's going to do now. I don't know what the future is. I do know that it's a terrible situation. And and I wish it, obviously, always wish it never came to war. I like the part, Daniel, that you mentioned about the Euromaidan coup and all that, because I think you have to look at these things big picture. And I would say you'd have to go even further back to really understand how we reached this point, because based on your research, what would you say has led to this current crisis between Russia and Ukraine? Well, the whole post-Cold War era has been a disaster. You know, we've had things like the Wolfowitz Doctrine saying that we will never allow any other country to build up ever. We are the we are the world dominant, you know, super mega unipower forever and ever. Amen. And, you know, rather than, you know, what a lot of us expected at the end of the Cold War, which is a peace dividend. In fact, our military expenditures went up astronomically. And we've got a great article on the Ron Paul Institute website written by my old friend Chuck Spinney that I would encourage your your listeners to check out because Chuck was a longtime Pentagon official. He was the guy who in the 80s was famous. He's always on the cover of Time, I think it was, because he was 
behind the military reform movement that talked about budgeting and things. But, you know, rather than at the end of the Cold War looking at a different kind of world, the U.S. military-industrial complex, you know, together with the think tanks in Congress, they had to keep the money flowing. And to do that, they had to continue to create crises, which they did. And, you know, the first one, of course, was in, in 98, when they started expanding NATO under President Clinton. It was not apocryphal. And now we know from the archives in Germany that there was a meeting and it was written down and notes were taken that Russia was given promises that NATO would not move further forward in exchange for the extraction of Russian, formerly Soviet, then Russian forces from Central Europe. It was a deal, it was made, and it was broken. It was broken continuously over and over. And then in 2008, you had the Bucharest Declaration that said not only the countries of Central Europe, but Georgia and Ukraine, which both border Russia, well, they can also be members. And uh, Dr. Paul has this week his column where he talks about a floor speech he gave at the time saying this is a really bad idea. Expanding to Russia's doorstep is a really bad idea and it's going to get the United States involved in a military conflict that has nothing to do with its national interests. That was back in 2008 and that's exactly where we are now. And certainly other people have talked about Professor Mearsheimer had a great speech that's really made the rounds where he said the same thing at the same era. And so did uh, George Kennan, you know, the, the father of the containment strategy in the in the Cold War saying this is this is wrong don't do this and the US government did it anyway and that's where you get to this point now what some would say after hearing that would say oh so you support Russia <laughs> you know no but you have yeah. to understand what led us to the situation where we are right that's a prerequisite before you can discuss any further and you'll never get that on the media or on the mainstream news for sure yeah absolutely not this world would be a totally different place if you had the likes of John Mearsheimer instead of John Bolton running foreign policy. John Bolton, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, so what move would you say that Ukraine or the West took that could be described as the final straw for Russia and prompting it to take military action against Ukraine? Well, I think it was two things. Like I said, the memo from December, I think, was the final straw, and they said it. That's the thing, you know, it's always believing that your adversaries, or whatever you want to call them, competitors, they're not lying, that maybe they're telling the truth, and maybe it's just because our politicians lie every time they open their mouths. But they said, look, this is the final straw. We need to sit down and talk about this. We've been sitting around. We've been taking it. We watched Libya. We watched Syria. We watched Iraq. We watched Afghanistan. We see, a, you know, an increasingly belligerent, hostile U.S. and NATO, and this is the breaking point, so let's deal with this issue. And here's the worst part, Jose, and this is what I've tried to say on our show, and the most cynical part, and Michael Tracy did a great piece a couple of days ago about it, but it was common knowledge that Ukraine was never to be allowed in NATO. They had no way in, at least in the foreseeable future. First of all, they're not eligible because they have border conflicts, and that's in the NATO charter, that you're not eligible for membership. So, Ukraine was never going in NATO and the U.S. knew it. So why at the point when Russia said, we need to talk about this, you keep saying that it's on the menu, it's a red line for us, why not, instead of pushing it to this point, would the U.S. have said, okay, let's talk. Let's talk about neutrality. Let's talk about, you know, let's put some things on the table. Why would they sacrifice? And, and I think this is the, the height of, of really murderous cynicism that the U.S., 
has sacrificed, and this doesn't excuse the military action, I think it's horrible, but the U.S. has sacrificed the Ukrainian people as a way to get back at President Putin and regime change Russia. You know, the regime changes, the color revolutions started out relatively peaceful and they got progressively more violent. The Maidan was extremely violent. And now we're at levels exponentially high of potential violence when you talk about nuclear war. So why would you use Ukraine and Ukrainian citizens as a cudgel to beat Russia with? I think it's an extremely satanic foreign policy on the part of the United States. And again, I'm not justifying any action. I wish to God it would end, you know, 10 minutes ago. But it was not necessary to be pushed this far. It's not some big climb down where we have to go, you know, put our head between our knees. No, it just made good sense for America's national interest to, at that point, try to figure out a deal and try to back off a little bit. To me, the foreign policy blob is just willing to see this whole thing through to like the last Ukrainian, which is absolutely demented and unnecessary. But unfortunately, we have a completely irrational foreign policy leadership at the helm. And it's pretty hilarious, too, because the U.S. always accuses countries of being irrational actors or rogue states and whatever, which is at this point mere projection. But that's how things go these days. So. Just looking at the overall matrix of like public opinion and just like the takes all over the space, like you have like the typical like neocon, neoliberal interventionist takes. Everybody is accustomed to that. Those people are always itching for conflict, whether it's like over color revolutions, all that. And they're squawking about how we need to get tough on Russia. But then you'll have like some more like milk toast like non-interventionist takes to say like oh yeah let's not send any troops or get directly involved here but but let's sanction russia instead why do you think that's a failing strategy well sanctions are an act of war and you're right i mean in some ways our worst adversaries are those who pretend to be cautious in foreign policy who nevertheless accept all the cia's talking points you know and uh caitlin johnstone the writer out of Australia, the anti-war writer out of Australia, she's written some great work on this. You know, if you don't want war, then don't repeat CIA war propaganda. And you see it over and over. Putin is a murderous thug who is rampaging through Ukraine and killing everything that moves. But we shouldn't send troops, you know, and it undermines the message about this when you accept the talking points. And I've said this before about this conflict. What we're really seeing, though, is and why I'm so concerned is that it's a perfect storm. Because don't forget, you had Democrats for four years praying at the altar of Russiagate. It was their new religion. President Trump, for better or worse, in our view, President Trump was a product of Vladimir Putin. He was literally put in office by Vladimir Putin. We knew all along, but now the world knows that the whole thing was a lie. But you know how it is when a false religion is debunked. You always have that heaven's gate, right? The heaven's gate cult or the the Kool-Aid drinkers. And these people now all of a sudden feel justified. Aha, we were right after all. We weren't crazy watching Maddow every night. And then the the other part of the perfect storm is you have the right-wing side who are saying, this whole thing happened because Biden wasn't tough enough. If we had been tougher, we would have deterred them. When in fact, it was the toughness that did not deter them but it encouraged them. It was the recalcitrance 
the inability to move, to negotiate that encouraged, it's now or never, guys, we got to go in. So it was a blowback. But you have a perfect storm where there are only a few of us saying, hang on a minute, this doesn't seem like that great of an idea. Yeah, there's really no coherent opposition. It's always like I see people hedging their takes, like whenever they'll be like non-interventionist, but they'll say, oh, but like Putin's a tyrant, blah, blah, blah. And it's all, all this stuff. Or use like really bad 20th century analogs that are not relevant, whether it's like Putin is like the next coming of Hitler or like the ex-KGB yeah. talking point. That stuff is just really low IQ, in my opinion, and just doesn't add anything of value to the overall discussion, which I think is much more about the geopolitical miscalculations the U.S. has made since the Cold War ended. Now, we are clearly in a changing geopolitical climate, whether these people want to admit it or not, because the world is becoming much more multipolar. You have a lot of other external actors with things to say about this conflict and a host of other conflicts for that matter. So you have like talk of China potentially serving as a mediator in this conflict. What do you make of that? China has been fairly cautious. You know, they abstained on the UN Security Council vote condemning Russia. Interestingly enough, India abstained. So you're talking about two of the most populous countries in the world. But of course, Americans think don't count because they're not white and they're not next door or something, you know. But these are serious countries with lots and lots of people, and they don't want to jump into this cauldron. I think China wishes it was over, and they've made that clear. But they've also made clear, and my, my good friend Colonel Doug McGregor has posited that he believes it very likely that the Russians cleared it with the Chinese before they started, at least gave them a heads up. And so as far as a third country to be a, a mediator, I don't know that there are uninterested parties. I don't know where you'd find one. I would have said Switzerland a week ago, but shockingly, Switzerland has taken an absolute turn and has stopped being neutral and has decided yep. to start sanctioning Russia, which is which is a real shame. You lose a lot of moral authority when you do that. As you say, they didn't even do that while Hitler was rampaging through, inarguably doing a hell of a lot more damage to Europe than Russia so far has done. That didn't phase him as much as this. So it's it's a real danger. I think, I don't know how the talks will conclude. I think we're seeing, and this is just a fact on the ground, and, you know, Colonel McGregor, I think, has been right all along, but, you know, Russia has the upper hand. It's always had the upper hand. There was never any question that Ukraine would beat Russia. And so you have a situation where every day that goes by without, you know, Ukraine capitulating uh, is a day that more people needlessly get killed, civilians and military, and more stuff gets smashed up. So the best thing to happen would be for the Ukraine to take a good hard look at its situation and realize if it accepted all of Russia's demands, which there are only two, be neutral and don't start taking a bunch of weapons from other countries that can threaten us, that would basically bring it to the status quo ante because they weren't essentially neutral. They weren't a member of any bloc. And well, they did have a lot of weapons thanks to Trump because Obama refused to send weapons to his credit, refused to send weapons because he knew and he understood and he understood because his ambassador, William Burns, who is now his CIA director, had informed him in this famous memo called Yet Means Yet 13 years ago, listen, guys, this is a red line. Let's don't go there. Let's don't do this. And Obama took it on board. At least he had the sense to do that. So it's going to come to Ukraine accepting what Russia demands. 
and they'll be no worse of a situation than they were before. And I would argue they'd be in a far better situation because they have a potential of having enormous trade with their neighbor, Russia, just like we enjoy enormous trade with our neighbors, Mexico and Canada. You know, trade, trade, as you know, being affiliated with Mises, trade is really the key to peace. You, you tend to not bomb people you do business with. So they, they have a potential. And I'm not pro-Russian, I'm pro-American. I don't want us to get in a war. But looking at it from the Ukraine perspective, you've got a great trading partner right next door, and you're not going to be any worse off than you were before this thing started. So, you know, what's not to like, really? Yeah, I'd even go as far as to say that, I'll just be blunt, the West from like the US to a lot of Western Europe is absolutely, completely decadent and dysfunctional from all the identity politics, LGBT radicalism, critical race theory and all that. Like, in my opinion, the future is eastward. And I think it would probably be wise for Ukrainians at least to be neutral and consider their options in the east. Because funny enough, going back to China, China has excellent relationships with both Russia and Ukraine. So it just makes more sense to not exclusively throw your lot with the West, which I believe is increasingly looking like a dysfunctional rotting corpse out here. But that's just me. Yeah, no, no, you're right. You're right. In the West, you see corporatism increasing. You see all of the things that we claim that other countries are doing with some degree of accuracy. China with its social credit system, well, we've adopted that, you know. So I think that's a very good point. And I'm, you know, has been strange to watch the phenomenon of Russia becoming more in touch with its religious roots over the past 30 years and the so-called West running further, further from any sort of religiosity or certainly with Christianity in the West. So there is a real shift there and it's interesting to watch. It is weird how the East is actually starting to behave more Western, whereas the West is becoming more post-Western and just embracing wokeism and other permutations of political correctness culture. It's pretty bad. I actually have argued this is much worse than being occupied by a foreign army or getting bombed out because like you basically lose your entire culture that way and like and civilization for that matter. Absolutely. So yeah, now looking at it, the partisan breakdown, I think we touched upon how there is practically, I'd say it's safe to say super majority support of some kind of escalation against Russia yeah. from both Democrats and Republicans alike. Do you at least see a small coalition or caucus of people in both parties that are pushing against the U.S. getting involved in another hot conflict? Well, I don't follow the Hill as closely as I used to, but I do know that Thomas Massey and a couple of other Republicans, there are three of them total, who voted against this resolution on the floor yesterday, I think it was, condemning Russia and embracing Ukraine. They took an awful lot of flack. They took an awful lot. And I know in the previous times when we had kind of a little anti-war coalition on the Hill, Dr. Paul would work well with, you know, Barbara Lee and Representative McGovern and a few on the left and some on the right, and they would get together. But I don't see that kind of coalition here. I mean, there wasn't a single Democrat, even the so-called anti-war like Rokana in California. He's all gung-ho now. So I think that's a real danger that there's nobody putting the brakes on this. There's nobody out there talking. And poor old uh, Poor old Massey, I mean, he's getting railroaded. He's getting, you know, he's getting bruised and beaten and punched. I even saw that um, the Daily Caller put out, these are the three members who voted against, 
you know, sympathizing with Ukraine or whatever. As we talked about on the Liberty Report today, we remember these resolutions. They're, they all they sell themselves as being very innocent. And Representative Massey explained it very well why he voted no. He said, we looked at the bill very closely, and there are ways of interpreting this that could lead to U.S. troops on the ground or no-fly zones, both of which are very bad escalation ideas. And so I just don't want to be a part of that. And we saw it over and over all these innocent resolutions that led to war, including the 1998 resolution calling for regime change in Iraq, which Dr. Paul opposed at the time, saying this is going to lead to war. And ta-da, it led to war. So, but yeah, I, I'm very, very alarmed by the lack of a bipartisan coalition against escalating toward Russia. Yeah, this leads to another point. I follow a lot of the rise of like the so-called populist right in the U.S. that is like on paper supposed to be more restrained on foreign policy than your average neocon and GOP. Do you see such a block ever forming inside the Republican Party anytime soon? I do see some of that. And I'm obviously, I'm not on Twitter because I've been kicked off for this and many other lifetimes, but I, I'm able to read. Obviously, I don't post, but I'm able to read you know, some things through the Institute's account. And I do see some people that I don't know that much about their politics. I know they're on the right, but people like Darren Beatty, who I think is with Revolver News and a few others, I think Mike Chernovich, who at first was very hawkish on this, but now I'm noticing a real turnaround as he's starting to smell the BS. So I do see some of the kind of, there's like a, and you know, there was a kind of libertarian group surrounding Trump Unfortunately, Trump didn't listen to them, but there was kind of a libertarian-ish coalition. And in fact, one of those individuals reached out to us on behalf of this libertarian anti-war caucus within the Trump circle and arranged a phone call between Dr. Paul and President Trump back in early 2020. So they were there, and I think they're still there, but whether they can coalesce into any kind of you know, cohesive force that's a good question. I, I don't I don't know how it would work, but I certainly hope hope that it would. I mean, I think I see the Republican Party, and I'm not a member or a fan, but I see you know that's where the energy would be because you know uh, Trump was able to get workers, blue collar workers. The Democrats have abandoned blue collar workers, as you point out. They're only concerned about wokeism. You know, the guy who's the guy who's out there in a coal mine or who who's driving a truck, he's not going to identify with the Democrats anymore. You know, my grandparents did. They were working people, and they said the Democrats are the party of the working man. Nobody says that anymore. So there's a huge potential for that vote, and I think that vote is going to be more anti-war, especially as they understand in their pocketbooks the cost of our foreign policy. But I'd love to see someone, I'd love to see, you know, a Pat Buchanan come forward, you know. I mean, the young Pat Buchanan come forward and, and really whip the whole thing around. But so far, I don't see anyone that, seems to be making those kinds of waves. That's funny you mentioned the class component because if you go on LinkedIn and when I just look at a lot of my normie friends and people that and acquaintances and contacts that I remember all the way back to high school, they're all part of the professional managerial class. They've got the Ukraine flags or like the <laughs> typical posts about the Ukraine situation about, oh, I'm not political, but on this day, I just want to express my solidarity with the Ukrainian people and condemn Russia's action. It's like the typical stuff. This is yeah. definitely a really big class component where the so-called spreadsheet Americans are very much in favor of this stuff, while the rest of the population, which 
tends to be working class or whatever, likely has family members or have served in the military know that these conflicts are hell, whereas the rest of like the really upper classes are detached from the realities of war. So it's easy to advocate for that stuff. Exactly. And it's it's COVID 2.0 because it was the exact same delineation for the last two years. As you say, the managerial class, they hung around for two years in their pajamas, having the times of their lives, while the truck drivers and the waiters and the ditch diggers and the plumbers, they all had to go out. Screw them, you know, go do your job. I'm going to stay home. And you find this, you're right, the exact same thing. I bet they just took down their put on your mask signs and now put up stand with Ukraine signs. You know, it's it's funny, but it's actually really alarming how easily people are manipulated. Yes, absolutely. Insane. You got to give the devil its due. This entire American regime apparatus from the government to like the media complex, they're like insanely effective at whipping up public opinion for the next conflict. And it's scary stuff, man. It is, you know, and uh, I just saw something on the, uh, it was a BBC and they were tweeting this is our crew in, in Kiev and we're so proud of them. It's that they love this stuff. They love war because it gives the media a chance to pat themselves on the back and act as if they're some sort of heroes. You know, it's, it's just, it's incredible to watch. And the other thing that they get away with is that anyone who challenges this narrative, they just get canceled. You know, YouTube will cancel your show or, you know, if you were talking about natural immunity for COVID a year ago, you you were canceled, you were, you, your accounts were closed and this and that. And, you know, they, they have the ability to shut people up in a way that I don't think they had, you know, in the past. No, yeah, it's, it's absolutely scary. I don't think we're in for some positive times ahead because there's going to be a lot more hysteria dialed up. And we're not even, we haven't even dealt with the China question as well. Like that's just going to get even more hysterical once the so-called pivot to Asia is complete. So to cap things all off, you've been advocating for a restrained foreign policy for a while now. What is your overall view on the growth of non-interventionist sentiments in the U.S.? Have they actually grown over the time? Well, I think they have and they, and they haven't in a way. I mean, I think I think our message is out, but I don't think people know it or understand it. And that's a problem. I think, you know, the failures of recent times have proven how right we have been and how right that philosophy is. But there's still the stigma that you are weak or you are, um, you're like uh, Dukakis. This is way before your time, Jose, but he was considered to be a wimp. Bush the first was considered a wimp. You got to be tough. And we still have to get around that, and it's difficult. But I think, you know, this this should be our moment. And as Dr. Paul always says, and I don't agree with him, but he says he wishes he was a better communicator because the ideas are perfect and the time is right, but we're all sort of imperfect communicators of those ideas. So I guess that's why we all have to try harder as well. Indeed, there's a lot of challenges that lie ahead. So... We're just going to have to continue sharpening our skills and communicating these principles in a much more digestible manner. But I think with time, I do see positive changes. Yes, absolutely. Let's hope. (laughs) Let's do our best. (laughs) Yeah, let's hope for the best. Well, great talk, Daniel. I think it's a good place to bookmark this discussion. So before we depart, please let my listeners know where they can 
follow your content and RPI's body of work? Okay, yeah, well, RonaldPaulInstitute.org is the Institute's website. We put up articles every day, three or four articles, just the ones that we think that are important to read. As I mentioned, Chuck Spinney's is up today, along with a couple of others that are important. The Ron Paul Liberty Report is aired on all of the social media. We go live on YouTube at noon Eastern time every Monday through Friday. Friday is primarily reserved for economic issues. And, you know, the Ron Paul Institute does have two or three conferences a year. So we love to see any of your listeners come join us at the conferences. They're always a lot of fun uh, and also very informative. It's almost like a, a family. So those are the main ways you can follow what we do. We're on Twitter and we're on, uh, we're on Rumble and Odyssey and whatever your favorite flavor is. Great stuff, Daniel. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you so much, Jose. Keep up the good work. And last but certainly not least, thank you to my listeners for tuning in to another episode of El Nino Speaks. Until next time, El Nino has spoken.